John Sweeney is a British investigative journalist and writer. He worked for the Observer newspaper and BBC's Panorama and Newsnight series. Sweeney ceased working for the BBC in October 2019 and now is reporting on the war in Ukraine, as well as creating a daily war diary, which I strongly advise you to watch if you've not yet seen it. He's also produced a film last year uh, called The Eastern Front, which is an incredibly searing and brutal analysis of the uh, war, uh, which again, I strongly, strongly recommend you watch that. It's an incredibly powerful piece of journalism. Welcome to Silicon Curtain. Please like and subscribe to find uh, more of our incredible speakers on the channel. And uh, do please share links to the channel with your friends. It's especially important at this time to keep Ukraine top of the news. John, welcome back to the channel. It's called, it's now called Under Deadly Skies, and it came out this year. It came but out this year, didn't it? And I should know that because I went to see it uh, in uh, in London. Annoyingly, um, it's uh, it's been rebranded Under Deadly Skies. Um, or you can put a link to it at the end. We'll definitely 100% put a link in there because uh, that, that's, uh, that was incredibly sort of powerful moment seeing that film. Um, and of course, uh, you know, it's, it's representative of the pointy end. It's representative of that part of Ukraine, which is taking the brunt of Russian aggression and, of course, war crimes, which uh, you discuss very, very frankly there. Um, how? Let, well, let's start with the film. Uh, what do you think the impact of that was and what kind of feedback have you got from people who have seen it? Well, what was incredibly moving was when we, we had a premiere in Kyiv and, um, and one of my... One of my uh, best uh, Ukrainian friends, she she said actually that was that was better than I thought it would be. Um, and and um, what happens? Praise is, indeed, isn't it? <laughs> that uh, I mean, uh, essentially, it's a road trip which we did last February or this February, um, whatever it is, um, seven eight months ago now, and um, um, we went with Kenan Robinson, who's a brilliant filmmaker. Um, and he'd never been to a war zone before. And so part of the comedy of the film, um, and, and it's you know grimly serious in intent, but there are some comic moments which I think gives it a, a certain um, um a certain character, a certain thing about it, is every time there's um artillery, Kenan jumps half a mile, and the, the, most of the time it's outgoing artillery, and and um bang, and I go, it, that's outgoing. And and I said, like, there's a difference between outgoing and incoming. Outgoing as a bang, it's okay. Incoming is different. You can feel it through your boots. Bang! Outgoing. And he checks me out with um, Paul Conroy, and Paul Conroy says, correct, absolutely correct. Paul Conroy's a great, great, great war photographer who was in Syria with uh, Marie Colvin when she was killed by fire from Assad's killing machine. Paul was severely injured, but survived. Bang! And it's a really big bang, and it's close. And Kenan says, that was incoming. And I said, you get used to it. So there's, there is so there's comedy, but we also, and this is very important, Jonathan, to, for people to understand the attitude of people here in Ukraine. We spoke to people who, when the Russians occupied the town of Kherson in the southwest, had been tortured. 
And there was one man in particular called Alexander who, who we filmed returning to the place where he was tortured. And he'd even put up a, a kind of um, a little calendar on the wall. Um, so he could directly work out this was the very cell he was held in with his friends and they they had um had put electricity clips on him and tortured him through electricity and all sorts of other ways and he is a big strong man not um an important man uh, you know a minor i think he i think he was a, um, a janitor in a block of flats but a good bloke and he was tortured in a kind of for no purpose, you know, which country are you in, you know, like moronic adolescent questions. And this is a pattern. And I've interviewed other people who've been tortured elsewhere. And so the reason why the Ukrainians want the Russians out of all of Ukraine is that they know people who've been tortured, like Alexander, who's in our film. And my friend Vlad Demchenko, he's a soldier, he's fighting special forces right now. I haven't heard of uh, from him in, in a month or so. Um, you know, how is he? I don't know. I don't know. But he um, he's fighting because, because 10 years ago he was uh, in, the, in the Maidan where they, they sought to overthrow the pro-Putin uh, president. You get rid of him. They wanted... Ukraine to be free, to be democratic, to join um, NATO, to join the EU, to have a free democratic life. And this is still their goal. But um, they also know, so, you know, um, Vlad wrote the, I helped, I wrote a book last year called Killer in the Kremlin about Putin and the, the people he's had killed. And this year I helped Aidan Aslan write his book called Putin's prisoner, and he also was a, a prisoner of Putin, and he was tortured. And this British, he's a British guy fighting with the Ukrainian Marines. He had a contract; he wasn't a mercenary. And the the Russians and their proxies um, in, in the east of the country, um, Aiden's battalion ran out of ammo. It was hit by a Russian bomber, and they had nothing left to fight, so they surrendered. And the moment. Uh, the Russian proxies saw Aiden's passport. He was punched on the nose. Then um, he was taken to a place where he was tortured, beaten unconscious, stabbed. And his image was put up on, um, on Russian video. And luckily, Aiden had put up a video a couple of days before, just before he surrendered. And he looked scared, but his face is unscarred. When he's on again, his case, uh, when he's on the Russian video, his face has been smashed up. His arm is really huge because it's broken or badly hurt. His, you can't see the wound, the stab wound in his back, but it's seeping. So these people know what it's like to live under Russian occupation. My friend Vladimchenko, who's attended a talk given by a therapist who treats Ukrainian prisoners of war who's been castrated by the Russians. And this isn't very common, but it's happened. There are multiple stories of, of women who've been raped by the Russian forces. And I've uh, met a, um, a Swedish guy who works for an NGO, who works with Ukrainian families whose children have been raped by Russian soldiers. So you get the drift here, yeah? The reason why Ukrainians do not want to surrender an inch of Ukraine 
is because the Russian army behaves monstrously. And everyone knows that. So politically, there is no appetite whatsoever for a deal with Ukraine because it would lead to castration and rape and torture of the people they're abandoning. And I do feel that, that people in the West don't get that. So what's happening now, as you, you, you know, is that there is, um, there is gloom here um, because, and, and you know, I was, I've been here pretty much for the whole war. I've had, um, every now and then I've gone back to London um, for some R&R, &R, but essentially I've been here um, from the start of the big war. And to be in Kyiv when the Russian army was 12 miles away was, it was frightening, but it was also incredibly exciting because of the spirit. No, we're going to fight. And they were serious and they were brave and they were good. And the electricity of that time was just extraordinary. And since then, an awful lot of, of, of um, young Ukrainian, um, mainly men, obviously some women, have been killed or maimed, their lives changed irreparably because they have fought like tigers. But they haven't fought with the right amount of materiel. So the deal is simple, is because Russia has got nukes, the Western strategy is we must not put boots on the ground because that could provoke, provoke a third world war. But what we will do is we're not going to fight with Ukraine, but we will arm Ukraine. And the problem is, I think that the true version of Western strategy is a long sentence, and we only articulate the first quarter of it. And the first quarter of the sentence is, we will defend Ukraine's right to exist, semicolon. But we will not give Ukraine enough arms to secure victory against the Russians and throw Russia out of Ukraine for fear of that toppling Vladimir Putin, because we fear chaos in Russia without Putin. And it is the second part of this strategy, which is now causing real gloom here in Ukraine. And of course, those who perhaps are in the unfortunate position of being able to see Russian propaganda in the original and watch an inordinate amount of it, which I'm afraid I, I already do, um, you will see that actually these narratives aren't just ones that we have uh, come to ourselves. You see them propagated and amplified in Russian propaganda. They want us to believe that the next bloke after Putin is going to be worse, which from the Ukrainian perspective is a ridiculous statement. But of course, no one who articulates these ideas thinks of articulating them through a Ukrainian voice or framework. Um, they threaten nuclear war. They threaten all these things. Most commentators who have analysed Russia in detail say that all these things are bluffs. These are all strategies to force us to limit our support and believe, one, that Russia is eternal and undefeatable, and second, that it's not in our interests to eject Russia fully, because that will stimulate real change in Russia and potentially the fall of Putin's regime. But the question here is, how can there be peace in Ukraine if Putin is still on the throne in the Kremlin?
I don't think they can be. Um, and it's not just a question of a piece. I'm very much, you know, I've fallen in love with Ukraine. I think it's a I think what they're doing here is that they are reminding us of something we in the West have forgotten, that democracy must be defended, that free speech does not come free. But they are actually fighting our war for us, because this isn't just about the in sovereign integrity of Ukraine, it's also about us, because Russia and China and Iran and North Korea and their proxies, Hamas, Hezbollah, etc., etc. They are effectively fighting together, and they are coming for us. And so, I, I mean, I I did Russian at school, and I and I'm you know I speak it terribly badly. I don't. I, I can read. I've just said, by the way, to non-Russian speakers, I'm a stupid dwarf. Also, isni Ruski, Korova. I speak Russian like a Spanish cow. So, uh, and that's true. But I, I also I did politics and philosophy at university, and I, I actually I went to LSE, and um, and our teacher, the professor of Russian politics. Um, he said, as a small, he was very old, and he said, I've forgotten his name, it's gone from my mind, never mind. And he said, as a small boy, I lived through both Russian revolutions, uh, the February and the October. The February one was exciting, but by the time the second one came along, we just want, carried on playing cowboys and Indians because it was more fun. Um, but um, that was a dry, uh, Leonard Shapiro was his name. Oh, he's extremely uh, well known. He yeah, has fantastic yeah. Uh, historian. The, but he was not only a fantastic historian, but he was kind of living history. So, um, it so you know, I was taught by somebody who, as a small boy, lived through both yeah. Russian revolutions. But well, my what, professor what, on, on on that one, you're like this one. My uh, professor at university met Kerensky, uh, who went to the U.S. and became a uh, an academic. And he said, you will never meet a more twisted and traumatized and bitter individual as him. Because for a short time, the entire fate of not just Russia, but the world, you know, was in his hands. And he he basically fluffed it. Yes. It is a tragedy what happened then. But this is an avoidable tragedy. If you combine um, Western economic power, America, Europe, Britain, we are 25 times richer, stronger than Russia. So that so long as um, we are together, we can easily out-manufacture the Russians. But at the moment, the North Koreans are supplying more artillery shells to Russia than Europe is. At the moment, the entire American governmental machinery is frozen because a small clique of pro-Russian, pro-Trump um, lunatics have, have got a, a lock on the Republican um, Party machinery in the House of Representatives. And, the, and they're stopping aid um, going to Ukraine at the same time. 
this awful war between Israel and Hamas and Israel-Palestine is, is a terrible thing and it's a terrible distraction. But for fear of a wider war, which I don't think is going to happen, by the way, but for fear of a wider war between Israel and Iran, the Americans are, are rerouting artillery shells, which were heading to, to here, to Ukraine, and they're going back to Israel or the Middle East. So that, And this is a serious problem because there isn't enough um, artillery shells for Ukraine at the moment. And people, I mean, last night in the Buena Vista, I was talking to someone who's got a, a, a good sense of what's going on. He's worried about there's been a, a series of raids in Chernihiv, um, which is a city to the uh, the northeast of Kiev. Um, and what they're doing, the Russians are sending special forces over and they're killing the border guards. Like once a week, something like this. A couple of the time the other day, there was almost the guy telling me the story was like a massacre, 20, 30 uh, Ukrainians. Now, is this actually a new front or is this a kind of mosquito style wearing down of attacks so the Ukrainians have to move more soldiers up to the northeast so that their, um, their big drive down in the, in the south towards top map uh, is, is weakened? We don't know, but you hear more and more of these stories so that the Ukrainians are more and more stretched. So there is, there's also a problem about articulating this stuff because you're quite right. Everything that, uh, that people like me say from here is critically analyzed by the Ukrainian, uh, sorry, by the Russian life factory. And the Russians will pump, you know, if you're saying things are gloomy here, the Russians will pump that out. And I notice it on Twitter. Um, and, but at the same time, if not enough effective military aid is being given to Ukraine, people, the Western public needs to know that. Because by the way, you know, there's no doubt. I mean, I've actually been to all the countries in the axis of evil. I've been to Russia, China. I've actually been to Gaza twice been to Iran, and of course, I've been to North Korea. And let me tell you, life is more fun in Kiev, London, Washington, Paris, Berlin, than those places, no question. And I'd like to say to the, the useful idiots of the Kremlin, people like Peter Hitchens, go to Moscow. Actually, come here, come to Kiev and listen to people argue, listen to people tell you um, funny stories about Zelensky, uh, uh, critical, not, you know, oh, he's our, our great hero. He is a hero to people here because he's been the voice of Ukraine at a critical moment. But there are people who will openly criticize him about some of his policies, about his efficiency, about his effectiveness, the people around him. You go to Moscow and they won't talk to you. You go to Moscow, you're somebody like me, you get arrested, you get detained. You go to China, no one will talk to you. You go, go to North Korea, the entire thing, there are no conversations, there are no private conversations of any kind whatsoever. So our system is better and we must get ourselves, our great powerful democracies, 
we've we've got to fix this. We've got to support Ukraine because if we don't, fear of a bad tomorrow is becoming greater than fear of a worse today. Because Ukrainian defeat or some kind of stalemate that leads to a stalemate is a kind of Russian victory because Russia still has something like a fifth of Ukraine's territory. And that's a lot of human beings there who face the who face evil, who will live in a in a in a joke state, you know, the Donetsk People's Republic, the Lugansk People's Republic, the other bits and pieces, where torture and rape and castration, with the you know, with the threat of your children being abducted. These are real things that are happening to people. Tens of thousands of Ukrainian kids have been stolen from their Ukrainian families and then taken to Russia. And what's going to happen to those kids there? So th- this is the this is these are the hard facts. The Westerners, and there are some of them are powerful in the White House in Berlin, in Westminster, who are saying, okay, enough's enough do a deal with the Russians. It's a deal that means people will be raped, people will be castrated, and kids will be stolen. What kind of deal is that? Also, it's a bridgehead. I mean, this is the other aspect that seems not to be comprehended, despite there being ample evidence for it. In fact, the entire construct of the Soviet Union was to brainwash and weaponize the populations of occupied territories to turn them against the next territory. That's the entire Warsaw Pact. But it's been done in Chechnya, where you erase a nation's identity, raise its cities to the ground, and then over a generation, turn its population into an army, which you can then fling at the next territory in your long-term ambition. Now, this may seem fantastical to some people, but this is exactly what the Russians have done in Crimea. This is exactly what they're doing with the population uh, in in um, Donbass. So, John, how do we get this message across? Because it's not just that the civilians are living in a lawless territory. It's that their children will be brainwashed into becoming military zombies or cannon fodder and used as a bridgehead for the next invasion of Ukraine, whether that be three, five, ten years' time. Yes, that's what everybody thinks here, by the way. So let's punch that home, that if there is some kind of deal, then the Russians will come back. But in the meantime, um, by the way, I don't know how. It's very, very difficult. How do you unpick... um, How do you... um, How do you... How do you somehow defang the power of a fascist state to brainwash its own people if you can't get to them? It's very, very difficult. You actually cannot. There's no physical way. You might uh, convince 5% of the population or so to flee, but the rest are. So that you you can... So part of my fascination with, um, with, uh, you know, my... some men play golf, some men um, spot trains. I annoy the Church of Scientology. But part of my fascination with doing that is because I'm trying to unbrainwash people who are brainwashed. 
uh, I think it's a brainwashing cult. They think I'm a bigot, a liar, and psychotic, um, all concerned, deny any wrongdoing. But, but there were, for example, when I lost my temple with the Church of Scientology, there were people who were inside the Church of Scientology then who were shown it as proof that the, their critics were, um, uh, were, were demons, that I was some kind of demon. And, and there were people who have subsequently left thought, no, I, even, even though I was brainwashed inside the Church of Scientology, I could see that you'd been manipulated to lose your temper. I could see there was something wrong about that. So even though you're brainwashed in a brainwashing state, there are moments where people can realize there is another story. And, and, and so it's, it's continuing, it, it's worth doing, it's worth doing, it's very much. But there's another thing that's going on as well. And, Lenin, and Stalin and Brezhnev never got close. The Soviet Union never got close at doing this. So what they did was they, you know, Stalin got... Uh, the American nuclear spies to spy for the Soviet Union. He got Kim Philby and his wretched crew, the Cambridge spies, to spy for the Soviet Union, a, a dictatorship, more fascist in my view than communist, but but never mind that. And 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 they, you know, Philby penetrated the whole of of British, uh, you know, MI6, but. Putin has done far better. Britain is impoverished. We're losing, what is it, 5% of our, our, our GDP a year or something like this because of Brexit. I believe that dark Russian money and dark Russian activity, political action, helped help push the numbers. I can't prove that. And all concerned in any wrongdoing, but I think that happened. And there's no doubt in my mind whatsoever that the Russian secret state pushed Trump to become the, you know, uh, the president in 2016. And, and and so Putin is. If we give Putin a deal, the idea he's going to say, "Oh, that's nice. I'll just sit and rest. Um, I'll, I'll have a break now." No, he's going to continue to use. The Russian, the machinery of the dark Russian state to undermine our democracies, to find his creatures inside our politics and our societies and our and our and our and our cities to work for them. People like Tommy Robinson, who's been to um, to Russia, who said, Oh, I'd love to have a pint with Vladimir Putin. People like Donald Trump. I've got to be careful because I saw what's happened to Carol Cadwallader, but you know, Aaron Banks has got a Russian wife. I, I used to say to Aaron, well, Aaron used to, he met him and his gang. They, they met the Russian ambassador and his team on several occasions. The men with snow in their boots, all concerned in any wrongdoing. But my anxiety about the Western policy, which says, let's, let's push Ukraine to do a deal, is that will be unbelievably cruel thing to ask the Ukrainians to do, given what we know about Russian barbarity. But it's stupid for us too, because it means that Putin is going to come and get us next. He's getting us now. We are in a war with Russia, and we don't know that. 
And how well are we doing in this war? We don't know. We're fighting badly. Well, what's happening is that Putin is weaponizing people, frankly, who are traitors. And they and people like Trump is are, is a traitor to American democracy, and he is more or less fascist in his announcements. And Putin is desperate for him to succeed. So the great generals that Putin can rely upon are generals boredom and general fatigue, and general what about every. And they're doing rather well for him. Um, by the way, none of those three will. Um, their helicopters will fall out of the sky. One of those three, you know, will drink the wrong kind of tea. So, so Putin's putting a lot of money on this stuff, and 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 I feel that I, I do not think, by the way, that that Western strategy is finished on this. It is concluded. This is what we do, but it feels like this is where it's ending up for a series of reasons. And we've got to we've got to change that. We have to spend more money on defense, every country in Europe and the United States. And we have to be more effective about what we um, what we send here. And it needs to when we say we're sending this stuff, we need to send it. By the way, what this means is we've got to start building ammunition factories in Britain again. Now, that sounds crazy. And we don't have the money because of Brexit. But we have to do this because. I can see this war with Russia continuing, continuing, continuing. And also behind Russia stands China. And um, I read a recent piece in the New Yorker about, uh, about how Xi has almost become, you know, China is much richer and much stronger than Russia. But Xi has somehow been captured by Putin's mind games. And that Xi is doing what Putin did. He's locking up the Chinese oligarchs. Uh, people like Mikhail Kolokovsky, the Chinese versions of these, are being locked up. All of them, bang, 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 bang. All the ones who've got a mind of their own, they've been locked up. And what this means is that Xi is is taking Russia down this path. And what what and and this is blunting the power of the Chinese economy to to reinvent itself, to to do exciting things. And so when you look at that. The, the final line of this New Yorker piece asks, is a stagnating China more or less likely to go to war with the United States? And the unescapable answer for me was more likely. So we need to build, I mean, you know, we need to, um, I think that the factory that made Challenger 2 tanks is now a housing estate, you know, um, um, complete with Ford Mondeos. I'm afraid to say we, we, we've got to start building factories for tomorrow and the day after tomorrow because we're in trouble. So the big, the primary problem with appeasing Vladimir Putin is we are making it more likely than not that my children or my grandchildren will end up fighting Russia and then China. That's uncanny, John, because um, I, I was saying this to... Uh to uh, some Ukrainians who I was speaking to yesterday. And we'll come on to, uh, we, won't, we won't name the individuals in the event, but it was an interesting insight. But they were listing, as mm. Ukrainians do when they get together, they were listing their relatives and friends who had either been killed, tortured, or unaccounted for, or who are on the front. 
and then they'll you know share the details um and all they'll need to do is to to share a name and instantly the other ukrainian interlocutor will know oh you know they'll 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 make a face they'll they'll know how bad it is depending on where on the on the front they're posted but the list is horrific for those who and of course the first world war is a long time away uh, in in history for us but every family will have one or more relative killed in the first world war this is what ukrainians are experiencing every single one of them will have their closest friends who have been killed their colleagues from work people they went to college with relatives family all of them and they'll be thinking exactly what you said is if we don't finish this now my children will be going here and i said to them one of the reasons i'm doing the channel is so that my little 10 year old boy doesn't get conscripted in whatever 12 uh um, years time or or whatever it happens to be yeah both my grandfathers uh, i didn't know them but they both fought in the first world war my father was a ship's engineer in the battle atlantic and i haven't fought in the war and that isn't isn't that lovely? So um, both my grandfathers were gassed, and they were also in dugouts. And when it was hit by um, Kaiser's artillery, uh, they were effectively buried alive. And they managed their friends managed to dig them out. Um, I think both of them were gassed twice and buried alive twice. And being buried alive was worse than being gassed. Now I've never had to make that uh, judgment because I haven't had to fight in a war for Britain or any war. That is good. But if we don't spend enough money on defence and we don't effectively help our Ukrainian friends, then, then, we're a, then a future war for us becomes more likely, not less likely. By the way, talking about effective, the other day, um, David Cameron, uh, Lord Cameron of Snooty, as he now is, uh, came to Kyiv and uh, lots of hugs and no money and no tanks. So let's just give you know one simple number. Um, the Ukrainians have destroyed 2,000 Russian tanks. The Russians have got something like 8,000 tanks left. Britain has given Ukraine 14 Challenger tanks. We have another 200 in storage, which are slowly rotting, and a couple they use for show. The Europeans, principally the Germans, have given 60 um, um, big main battle tanks, these are the Leopards, to the Ukrainians. So that is 74 main battle tanks. The American Abrahams tanks haven't arrived yet. So the Russians have got 8,000 tanks left, and we, we, the West, have given 74 main battle tanks. Hello? So what the problem I'm seeing here is there are far too many, uh, by the way, the Secretary of State for Defense for America, the head of the Pentagon, Austin, he comes to Kyiv and he announces $100 million. Uh, Ukrainians need billions. They need billions. And there was a package of some like $8 billion, which is at the moment frozen because it's not moving anywhere because the MAGA extremists have frozen the decision-making in the House of Representatives. So what you're getting is a kind of pantomime, because it's that time of year, a pantomime um, reality uh, of, 
of aid to Ukraine without, without the fact, without the real thing. And what matters in politics is not what you say, but what you do, that your words have effect. And at the moment, now, where this all will come unstuck is if, for example, and God forbid, I don't want this to happen, but if the Russians go on the move and they get back a big city, say Kharkiv, which was a city of a million people, this is not impossible if we carry on not helping Ukraine effectively. Then suddenly we will see a whole new burst of Ukrainian refugees. And then you've got to say to the people who've let Ukraine down, well done, congratulations. Where are you going to put these people? Who's going to pay for them to live in the West? Should they, um, should they be on benefit or should we let them starve? Or is it better that they live in their own homes in safety because we have the money and we have the resources to do that? At the moment, we don't have the political will. So there is a, and, and this is why, and I know it sounds depressing, Jonathan, and when I go back to London, let's go for a drink and, and drown our collective sorrows. But this is why it feels like we're living inside a replay of 1938. And we all know how that ended up. And the cost only rises. This is something that uh, uh, Ben Hodges and um, uh, Sir Richard Sheriff made very clear on the channel recently. The cost of fighting tyranny only rises. And yet it seems to me, and for all those Democrats who are sort of smugly saying, well, it's all the MAGA Republicans' fault, there's a problem on the other side of the aisle, I believe. And that is, there is a contingent. And I think we were, we were talking before we hit record that actually this debate isn't final, but there is a contingent. Often they are, uh, you know, global foreign policy experts. There are some lawyers, people who've heard this channel will know who I'm referring to here, um, in the administration who fervently believe that ultimately this war cannot be fully won by Ukraine ejecting Russia from its territory. It will inevitably result in a negotiation. And there may be the thinking here that there may be some incremental gains that will improve Ukraine's negotiating position. But if ultimately it all ends in a negotiation, then why would you supply Ukraine with the additional material to carry on fighting? It seems that there are these arguments happening and that that school, I call it the defeatist um, appeasement school uh, or shoot yourself in the foot school, seems to be gaining the upper hand. What's your impression of the two sides of this debate? And let's call out Democrats who are maybe hooked on this illusory idea that you can negotiate with Putin. Well, there's a problem in that the, there are people close to Joe Biden who think this. Now, Joe Biden's motivation is... It, I mean, it makes me think about appeasement um, harder. Neville Chamberlain did not want to fight a, a second world war. And he was so afraid of not wanting to fight a second world war that he ended up creating a, the conditions for a second world war because we let the dictator get away with it. We didn't stand up. So there are three great missed opportunities. For example, if you're British, when... Um, when the, the Russian dark state used um, a weapon of mass destruction to poison Litvinenko, 
and God knows how many other Londoners uh, with Polonium 210, we should have read the riot act seriously. Instead, we expelled four diplomats. Hello. Then in 2014, uh, the Russian big missile shot down MH17. 10 Britons were on that plane. 298 people were killed out of the sky, but 10 Britons. It's a very serious terrorist attack by the Russian state. And again, we, um, our, our messaging was weak. 2018, guess what? More poison. This time with a different kind of weapon of mass destruction, but a weapon of mass destruction, Novichok, used against a British citizen. And it, it didn't kill the intended target, but it killed a, a perfectly um, decent Wilshire last Dawn Sturgis. So these are the, you know, the lines in the sand that we kept on. So this is a line in the sand. sand. This is a, a red line. Oh, walk across it. Okay. Oh, you walked across it. Oh, dear. Okay, we'll go backwards. Don't do this because we're not going to be strong enough. Because dictators like Putin smell our fear. But there are people, so I think there's a continuing argument. The, um, um, what one hears is, for example, uh, Blinken is on the side of really standing by Ukraine. But Jake Sullivan, the American national security advisor, is, is on the side of, of appeasement. I'm using that language because I understand He's it. a lawyer, by the way, just saying. The, um, shoot all the lawyers. I don't think so, because I believe in the rule of law. And I would commend to you uh, Sir Thomas More's great speech in Robert Bolt's A Man for All Seasons, where he goes at Richard Rich for the same term, uh, destroy the law. And he says, the liberties of England are defended by this forest of laws. And what would you do? You'd knock them all down? What happens if the devil came for you then? How would you defend yourself? So I'm in, I'm in favour of the rule of law, but not necessarily lawyers. And, and However, perhaps not giving them the uh, power to decide strategy. Lawyers very good at interpreting and enforcing law, not maybe at, uh, at strategic thinking. Well, so there is a... Um, Anyway, I think there's a continuing argument inside the Western um, powerhouses. I also, I, I worry about Rishi Sunak. I don't think, um, I'm, I, I dislike Boris Johnson intensely, but at some animal level, he, he got it, that it was important to stand by Ukraine, having, having shilly-shallied and dilly-dallied for a long, long time. Certainly as foreign secretary, he was no effective friend to Ukraine. But he, when the big war starts, he gets it, and we do stuff. But when Cameron came here, we've got no, no announcement of British aid. And there's no prospect of it because Britain is broke. We've impoverished ourselves because of Brexit. So we're out of the game. This, so what's happened is Russia has again um, uh, used its dark power to affect a weakening of Britain as, a, as, as an effective player. We're not really in the game of defending Ukraine effectively as far as the future is concerned because we don't have any money. Why? Because of Brexit. Who, who thought that Brexit was a bloody good idea? The, the Kremlin. By the way, what's happening in Africa is deeply distressing. So essentially, there's been a series of coups throughout the Sahel, which you can go now from the whole of the Atlantic Ocean all the way over to the Gulf, 
all of these countries are now pro-Kremlin with um, the, the new morphed version of the Wagner army um, helping the dictators um, secure, helping them to torture, helping them to murder their opponents. And they're running, um, they're running adverts saying, you know, how good French social security is. They are pushing Africans north. And it's a replay of what happened in 2016. Putin supports the tyrant Assad. Assad is such a horrible person. Uh, uh, young men don't want to uh, fight for him. They flee the country because fleeing the country is less of a risk than staying to fight for Assad. And then this generates terrible social tension in Europe. Every likelihood of this happening again. If we do a deal with Putin, he's not going to sit still. He's going to carry on attacking us, undermining us, corroding the rule of law, corroding our institutions. And so, I mean, you know, the big picture is, yes, we must defend Ukraine. But by defending Ukraine and arming Ukraine properly, we're also fighting for ourselves and our liberties and our democracies and our way of life. And we cannot assume in this silly way that we're doing at the moment, some people think that just because um 1989 happened that everything's going to stay like that no 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 our side is in trouble our side is on the back foot the people who are feeling it the worst are the ukrainians because they're right at the front line they're at the pointy end but just because the, we you know london is further west it doesn't mean the russians are coming they're not coming for us oh yes they bloody are and the last question here, and I think it's very apposite, uh, this is the 10th anniversary of Maidan. And I think something that is also underappreciated is that Ukraine is still a revolutionary society. Many of those who are fighting, many of those who are working in the media or as academics or on Ukrainian culture, they are still fired up by the fervor of the revolution, by the values of the revolution. And as you said earlier, that very keen sense of what unfreedom versus freedom actually means in your daily life and your identity uh, and to the rule of law and the ability to fight corruption and evolve your culture and country. None of these things, of course, will be possible under Russian occupation. But it seems to me you do not appreciate either the importance of Maidan or the fact that Ukraine is defending something not only that is valuable for itself, but something that we can learn for. It seems that we, as you say, have lost the sense of the value of freedom because we haven't had to defend it for a generation, um, defend it with, with lives and blood. Um, do you think our political class in some way are slightly fearful of Ukraine because Ukrainians talk truth to power. Ukrainians call out the bullshit. Uh, Ukrainians are full of fervor and energy to reform and change. That must make a lot of establishment figures quite uncomfortable, in fact. Yes, I feel that, um, well, what's going to happen is that soon, this winter, the, the failure to deliver um, effective military aid in a timely fashion is going to have consequences for, for life and people here. 
So what everybody is worried about is that there will be a new Russian um, rocket um, and drone attacks on on the, on the on the on the power stations. And um, I mean, I was having a drink with a Ukrainian friend, and um, she bought a generator. And I thought, is that for you? No, no, no. It's actually for some uh, friends in the army. But but it's like. It's like she actually showed me a picture of her a generator on the phone, and it was like generator porn because because if you've got a generator, you're going to be okay, you know. And 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 um, and and so there is. I mean, there aren't people in London or in Britain or in America who are doing that, but then they're not at the sharp end. They don't understand. So there is a real thing: is that I think people here kind of live in truth. They understand what it's like. They're fighting, or they know people fight. I mean, I, you know, I know. I've got friends. There's a friend of mine in one of the bars. You know, her bloke's in Bakma. You know, he's, he's hi. How's it going? Good. You okay? Yes. How's your guy? He's still alive. And by the way, this means something. You wouldn't go into a a, a pub in London, or Liverpool, or Sheffield, or Glasgow, and say. Or Cardiff, uh, or Belfast. Let's get it all get it all out there. You know, how's your you know to a you know to a barmaid? How's your bloke? Oh, they're still alive. So there is something true about what Ukrainians are going through. That this agony is not a drama. It is real life, and it reminds me of what I read about Britain in 1940. And it's why I like being here, because um, Kiev, it feels to me, is the capital of the free world. And yes, I feel that our politicians are failing us. And they are telling, they're beginning to tell something that's off. That what they've been doing is beginning to, as, as things get worse here, it's beginning to be re revealed that what they've been saying is more live and truth. We are helping Ukraine, okay, but enough? No. And, and, and what's that mean? Is 14 Challenger tanks enough to change the game here? So the effective, you know, what matters in politics is not what is said, but what is done. And the effects of our poor delivery of our lack of commitment, our lack of money, our lack of serious, effective aid who's, is, is, is about to be seen. What we've done is we've given the Ukrainians enough to defend themselves, but are not, not enough for victory. This means agony for the Ukrainians, but it also means that Vladimir Putin lives to survive another day. And you know what he's going to do with that borrowed time we've just given him? He's going to try and fuck us. We've got to stop him before he causes more damage. More damage in Africa, more damage in the Middle East, more damage in Europe, more damage in Britain. We've got to stop him, full stop. That's a very powerful place to end. It, and if people are interested in that story around Sahel, uh, there's a fantastic interview on the channel with Beverly Ocheng, who goes into the extraordinary detail of um, how Wagner and Russia have engineered at least eight out, I think, of the 10 coups 
that have happened in the last 10 years. And why are they doing it? Is it simply to exert power? No, they have access to huge resources, uh, gold, diamonds, other resources in these countries, as well as contracts from the newly minted dictators of those countries, uh, lucrative contracts for mercenary troops. Um, so it's a huge mafia money-making machine, and it's one that can corrupt us from the inside and out if we let it. John, what you do is incredibly inspiring. It feels that this is coming to a point where these words of people on the ground like you are more and more and more important, but less and less and less heard in the mainstream media. So thank you so much for talking to us, and thank you for everything that you're doing. Cheers, old boy. Um, I, as you see, I, I had my nails, to cheer myself up, I had my nails done. I've also, um, um, I had my nails done once before, but I've also, at this time, I have got my toenails done. Something I, I there's a danger, and every now and then to show off, I actually take my uh, my boots and socks off. To show, like, And it's now, it's it's snowing, it's minus five out there. And so if I, I've got it, so I'm worried I'm going to end up with frostbite. <laughs> And when they treat you, they outcome the nails. <laughs> the, the, well, well, so yes, but uh, it's kind of, uh, but we've got to, I mean, Britain did this in 1940, you know, um, we fought the monster and we had a laugh. And that's also true here. Don't, don't misunderstand my, my, my gloom about the failure of, of, of Western um, delivery is not the same as the Ukrainians are defeated. They're not. They're still they're fighting like tigers, but they need more bullets. They need more ammo. But they're heroes, and it's great to be here. John, thanks so much. Good luck. Stay safe. And we'll see you, hopefully, in Kiev uh, in a couple of months when I come over. <laughs>